Open to 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll get to that in just a second. As you're finding that place in the Scriptures, as we're getting started, let me just ask you a question. Have you noticed, certainly, as time goes on, that some things just quit working? I'm really glad you responded that way. So, I know it's true of, I mean, it's true of a lot of things, but man, I feel it in my body. I, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, this is actually a, a, an actual prayer request. I, I've been having trouble with my shoulder. I can't move my arm to all the positions it should go, and I'm scheduled for some surgery on Thursday, and right on, dude. Thank you. Pray for that. My elbow is, I mean, stuff's breaking down, you know, and uh, we know that that happens. Things just wear out, and the good news, I guess, is, is that while we all understand that one day these physical bodies will wear out and give out, we have a spiritual life that lasts forever, amen? amen? And that's really what matters. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, as we've walked through every chapter and every verse, we've come through chapter 12, and the theme is spiritual gifts, and we come to chapter 13, and the overarching theme is still spiritual gifts, but it focuses in on this issue of charity or biblical love. And what we've seen in the first three verses was the dominance of charity and how it's greater than several other things. And in verses 4 through 7 last week, we saw the definition of charity as we had 15 characteristics defined for us what biblical charity really is all about. And today we're going to look at the title of the message, The Durability of Charity, and that's coming from verse number 8 to the end of the chapter to verse number 13. And there are some things in life, as defined even in this chapter, that come and go. But some things last forever. And what I think the Lord wants us to remember as a general principle for our lives is, is that we need to be aware of the things that last forever and make sure we're investing in those things. Amen? So, I want to forewarn you all to get ready. Today is, I mean, so the testimony talked about getting right into the Bible study, you know, being pleasant. Um, today is going to be extra pleasant. Uh, we're really digging into the Bible today. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I hope you put your thinking caps on and get ready. I mean, we're going to, you know, we're going to serve up some beefsteak and, uh, you know, you need some protein if you're out there exercising. Amen? Uh, so those of you who are out there exercising need your protein. And uh, if you're newer to First Baptist Church or if you just can't seem to follow along, we're going to go kind of fast and we're going to go through some very deep things. Actually, I don't think it's that difficult. But anyways, if you have a hard time keeping up, just get what you can. Just get what you can and hang on for the ride. And allow me just to invite you right now to come back next week. How about that? And, uh, but this is one of those weeks. This is the week we got to dive in. I mean, the Lord has brought us to this place. We can't ignore what's in front of us. And as you'll see going forward, uh, we're going to have to dig a little bit. Y'all ready? Yeah. All right. Starting in verse number 8, chapter number 13, let me read. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. You ready? Let's pray together and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, Lord, I know there's been a lot of people who have tried to understand your mind in this area, and sometimes it's a little harder than other times. And so as we study, my prayer is that you will give us understanding. But not just understanding, that you would grant to us wisdom to be able to apply it. And through it all, through all of the things that we will uncover in the comparison of your word as you have given it to us, I pray above all these things, as your word emphasizes, and I believe you desire of us, that we would have hearts of charity. That what we would do would be pleasing to you because we are loving, charitable 
people in your family. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to start our study with your first point, which I'm calling Recognize the Comparisons. Recognize the Comparisons. And what you need to see is, is that Paul is using a literary technique called parallelism. Okay, he's using parallelism in this passage to communicate what I've titled the durability of charity. Charity lasts forever, right? So he gives us lists. He gives us a list of things that are temporary, and then he gives us some things that are permanent. So some of the things that are temporary, for example, like in verse number 8, it says, Prophecies shall fail, tongues shall cease, and knowledge shall vanish away. Now, I believe that exactly what God's trying to communicate here in prophecies and in tongues and in knowledge are taken from the direct context of the passage. That is coming from chapter number 12, literal, actual, spiritual gifts. Prophecy was one of the spiritual gifts. It actually was defined when we studied that as a temporary spiritual gift. Uh, tongues is an actual spiritual gift, a legitimate spiritual gift, but we understood that it was a temporary spiritual gift. We'll talk more about that today. Knowledge has to be understood, in my opinion, not just as general knowledge, but it has to be understood as the word of knowledge as it's described in chapter number 12. It's impossible for us to think that the, the meaning of the word knowledge in this particular verse, in this location in the scripture, means general knowledge because folks face it even off into eternity general knowledge never vanishes away. So that can't be what it means. This is the thing that has caused people to stumble coming to the knowledge aspect. We were going to get we're going to get deep into the weeds in a minute. I don't want to get ahead of myself. The point is some things are temporary. Without question verse 8 says prophecies are temporary, tongues are temporary, and this knowledge thing is temporary and I believe the only way you can properly understand that is within the immediate context, and the context is spiritual gifts. All three of those spiritual gifts have to do with what we titled earlier as revelatory gifts. They are gifts of God speaking through men, revealing new scripture, something that happened in the first century, something that has ended, and therefore are no longer needed anymore. That's how we have to understand that, or none of this will ever make sense. That's an important ground rule. Recognize the comparisons. Recognize some are temporary. It goes on in verse number 9, and it says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Well, we could say then that the comparison between the two columns, as we will see, is partial versus perfect. That's the way we're going to look at them. Some things are partial, they're in part. Some things are perfect. We understand that the word perfect, defined biblically, means mature, complete. It never means sinless. It always means complete, mature, all through the Scripture. And you're going to see that that's what it means here as well. So there are some things in this list that are permanent or perfect or complete and mature. For example, in verse number 8, charity never faileth. And he goes in verse number 10 and he refers to the thing that we are going to understand before today is over, that which is perfect. Whatever that which is perfect is, hang on, we'll get there, okay? But before we do that, I want you to just get this bigger picture. I want you to understand the comparisons and I want you to understand that God illustrates these comparisons with childhood and manhood. This is the illustration given in verse number 11. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, the childish things, they're gone. They're done. They're put away. Right? So this is the illustration. Childhood is something that is temporary. Childhood is something that is partial. It only lasts for a while. Whereas manhood, adulthood full maturity does away with childish things henceforth and forever amen and when grown-up adults act like children well they never actually put those things away but they should right they should so then the passage continues with verses 12 and 13 we're just walking through it again 
And it talks about some things that are now and some things that are then. These are the comparisons. The things that are now are the things that are partial, and the things that are then are the things that are perfect. And so I've made a little chart for you and put it in your notes, and I assume that it'll pop up on the screen. And so we have the things that are now or partial, being whether there be prophecies, they'll fail, whether there be tongues, they'll cease, whether there be knowledge, it'll vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, when I was a child, that's partial. We see through a glass darkly just for a while. I know in part is mentioned again. Now abideth faith, hope, charity. Whereas on the other side of the column, we have things that are then, things that are perfect, things that are complete, things that are mature, things that are permanent. That thing that's generally referred to that which is perfect. We're getting there. That which is perfect, certainly is perfect. Man, manhood, adulthood, maturity, those things are mature and complete. When we see face to face, that's something that's going to abide because this partial vision is going to be done away with, right? Eventually, I shall know even also as I am known. We're going to define every one of these terms. And then although charity abides even now today, charity continues to abide into eternity because charity never faileth. Are we good? Are we tracking? We okay? Okay, I want you to stay with me. So we, I put this in your notes so that you can see how they all line out and how they all are compared as we, as we look. We're going to refer to this again. Before we get to all this and before we define all of these things this morning, for now, let me just refer you back to the list and refer you to the bottom which comes in verse number 13 where it says and now abideth faith hope charity these three and I want you to understand that faith and hope are only for now and not for later whereas charity is also for later how do you know well because faith by definition of 2nd Corinthians 5 and verse number 7 is the opposite of sight and so once sight appears, we no longer have the need for faith anymore, right? So faith is temporary. It's in full effect and legitimate and very important to our lives right now. But eventually there's coming a time when everything God prophesied and talked about is going to be fully realized and fully visible. And when that day comes and Jesus Christ is ruling visibly on a throne in Jerusalem, well, there's no more need for faith. No more need for faith. It seems weird, doesn't it? No more need for faith. Because faith is the opposite of sight. And when sight is there, then faith isn't there by definition. And hope, by definition, is not just I hope something happens. Hope, by biblical definition, is the expectation of something that has not yet happened. It is still yet future. One of the definitions I like to use is in Titus where it talks about our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that is an absolute surety that it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. So once the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ appears, guess what we don't need anymore? We don't need hope. There's no more need for hope, right? So now abideth faith, now abideth hope, well, now abideth charity, but yet charity will continue. Charity is greater than all of these things because it continues off into eternity. These are the comparisons that Paul uses. You with me? We doing okay? All right, you glad you came so far? All right, this is easy. All right, we're just getting started. We're getting warmed up. Okay, so to understand the passage as a whole and to be able to determine each individual element that's been mentioned, you have to see that Paul uses this parallelism. You have to see that he uses these comparisons and contrasts. This is only step one. This is setting the stage, okay? So we have two lists. The real question we need to start dealing with now is what does that all mean? Most simply and most directly, and I'm going to restate the obvious because I'm good at that, the partial list is just that. It's in part. It's not full. It's not complete. They are temporary. They serve. I don't want you to misunderstand they serve a very valuable, legitimate purpose. But they only serve that valuable, legitimate purpose for a time. There will eventually come a time 
when they are no longer needed to fulfill that legitimate, valuable purpose. Do you see that? And then the things that are permanent, well, they'll go on forever. So even the things that are partial, they are very important. They are very valuable. They are things the Lord gives us. It's just not the full meal deal. There's still more out there. Amen. Aren't you glad there's more out there? Okay, so the question then I want to ask as we lead into our next point is, does one influence the other? How do they work together? So this is our next point. Now we're going to reference the correlations. Now we're going to reference the correlations. So look back at your list. We have the things that are partial, and we have the things that are perfect. And when you see how these things relate to one another back and forth, so whether there be prophecies, tongues, knowledge, they'll vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then all the partial things are going to be done away. You're a child for a while, but when manhood comes, childish things are put away. Now we see through a glass darkly, but eventually face to face. Now we know some things partially, but eventually I'm going to know fully, right? Now abideth faith and hope, well, and charity, but eventually charity is going to last and reign and rule forever and ever and ever. See? So these things are related, and you need to see how they are co-related. And the what, all I want you to get out of the second point, and I made it an individual point just for your construction of the logic that we're trying to build. The perfect eliminates the partial. When the perfect shows up, that is the time. That is the, the time stamp when the partial goes away. Because the big argument, the big discussion, and the thing we're going to spend most of our time on today is defining what is this thing that's called that which is perfect and determining, therefore, as a result, the time stamp. Because once you know the time stamp, then you're not confused about what continues, which you shouldn't be confused anyway, because you know those things are going to continue. But really, you won't be confused about what has already ceased. Because there's a lot of people who are confused about that. A lot of really nice people. A lot of real sincere people. And they're really confused about exactly what things have ceased. The perfect eliminates the partial. So once you become a man, childish things are eliminated, right? Wish more people were men. <laughs> once you see face to face, well, this partial vision, well, that's, that's eliminated. I see face to face. Once you know fully, well, partial knowledge is put, it's gone. It's, you know, there's no partial. I have, full, I have full knowledge now. And once that which is perfect is come, whatever that is, then that which is in part, oh yeah, by the way, all of the temporary spiritual gifts that were of a nature to reveal new revelation to, to man, prophecies, tongues, word of knowledge, they're going to be done away with. That's very, very important. And it all hinges on determining biblically, comparing Scripture with Scripture, it's the only way we know how to do it, what is this thing that's referred to as that which is perfect? Have you ever, have you ever wondered this question? This is a question that comes up all the time in Bible Q&A. What is that thing? Okay, it, it comes up all the time. And it's a legitimate question because it's not that easy to figure out just in a, in a first reading. But let me just tell you something. It really, really matters. So let's get into point number three, and this is where we're going to camp. Reveal the choices. We've got a couple options. We're going to look at them. There has been a lot of debate on this subject. There's been a lot of disagreement on this subject. And I want you to know that it's critically important for you in your Christian life today. It really is. You need to know and not be confused about what stops and what continues. Some things have stopped. We referred to that. And some things will stop. And false teaching in this area truly has led many sincere well-intending believers astray, thinking that things that actually don't exist anymore still exist. 
and in their zeal to see the things that they think exist, actually don't, and their zeal to see that, risk fabricating some manifestation of it. And this is where the rubber meets the road. The big question, the question whether you recognize it or not, that we have to deal with in this Bible study today, the question surrounds when. When does that happen? When do the partial things cease to exist? Well, it's really easy. The answer is right in in verse number 10. When that which is perfect has come. That's when. It tells you when. Okay, but what is that thing? Okay, well, that's what we're getting into. So what I need to do is present to you what I believe to be the only two reasonable options. Yes, you heard me say the only two reasonable options in my opinion. There are other options people have proposed. I think that those options are not reasonable. We're not going to take the time and do that. Today we're going to talk about two very reasonable arguments, okay? And we're going to look at both of them. You deserve to see both of them, okay? So the first one is option number one, letter A, the case for the Scripture canon. And when I say canon, I don't mean the thing that fires big steel balls. The canonization of the Scripture is the compilation of the Scripture into one volume as we understand it today, okay? So the case for the Scripture being canonized. The question is, can we define the perfect thing with that understanding biblically? Is there a biblical defense for considering the interpretation of the perfect thing to be the canonization of the New Testament and therefore the whole Bible? Well, let's look. Psalm chapter 19 and verse number 7 interestingly says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Well, that means the law of the Lord is something perfect, right? The law of the Lord is perfect. It's what it says, converting the soul. James chapter 1 and verse 25 says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We'll see the verses preceding verse 25, but clearly the context of James 1 is talking about the Word of God. There's no question about it, and it is referred to specifically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the perfect law of liberty. So there is without question biblical precedent for us to consider the fact that that which is perfect could be the Scriptures. Would you not agree? There certainly is biblical precedent for that. When we When we do the research and we apply one of the rules of Bible study, the the law of first mention, and and we want to look up this thing of that which is perfect, the first time the word perfect shows up is in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 9, referring to Noah, where it says that Noah was perfect in his generations. Now that's a very interesting statement, and it leads to some really interesting Bible studies that we won't do today. But at the end of the day, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. And then it'll help you understand what it does. What it doesn't mean is that Noah never had any sin. That's not what it means. Noah was perfect, and by the way, it doesn't say he was perfect in his generation, meaning that he was the best guy among the crowd of people he lived around. That's not what it means either. Well, what does it mean? It means he was perfect in his generations, meaning of all the generations of the genealogy and lineage of his family and where he came from, Noah was without spot or blemish. That's really what it means. And actually, we see this usage all through the Bible. For example, in the animals that are sacrificed in the tabernacle. These had to be without spot. They had to be without blemish. They had to be perfect, right? And so the idea is is that there were no imperfections found in the lineage and genealogy of Noah. And so as a sidebar, for those of you that are interested... The, the imperfections that would have been found in the genealogies of some of the other people is found in the previous verses of Genesis chapter 6. Go there for some fun reading. I'll just leave it at that. So the question that we have to ask now is, how does this potential interpretation fit with the remainder of the Scripture revealed in 1 Corinthians 13? We have some things that are now and some things that are later. And this should be able to fit if it's the proper interpretation, right? So let's see how it fits. It starts by saying, now we see through a glass darkly. Now we see through a glass darkly. Well, without question, it's not hard to see, and we'll see it again in just a second, but 
when the Bible refers, when your King James Bible refers to the glass, it's not talking about a window. Looking out your window is seeing through the glass. It's not like you got the heavy tinted windows like the cool guys' cars. It's not, it's not like that. He's talking about a mirror. The glass is a looking glass. That's what they used to call it in the old days, right? So it's a looking glass. And by the way, when you look at your face in the mirror, you are looking through a piece of glass onto a reflective material to which your image is then reflected back for you to see, right? So you're looking through a glass. It's actually technically accurate for those of you that might wonder. But it says you see through, now we see through a glass darkly. Well, of course, darkly means with limited light. It means that the image is somewhat of an enigma. Literally translated, if you want to go back to, you know, a Greek definition dictionary, it means as though it's in a riddle. We see through a glass mysteriously. We see through a glass as though it were presented, let me say, as a parable or a mystery, right? And so... I'm going to refer you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we have the Apostle Paul telling the story of Moses. Moses goes up into Mount Sinai, and he's going to get the law, and the children of Israel are down at the bottom of the mount, and Moses spends time with God, and he's going to come down. But when he comes down, his face shined with the glory of the Lord, so much so that he had to put a veil over his face because the children of Israel couldn't even stand to see the glory that reflected off Moses. Right? This is the story that Paul is setting up in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. And so the lesson that he's teaching is he's saying that Israel today, this is Paul writing Corinthians, right? So it's in the time of the church age. He says Israel has the same veil over their heart now in the New Testament era in their understanding of the Old Testament. In other words, national Israel that could not seem to figure out that Jesus was the Messiah is looking at the Old Testament scriptures and instead of seeing Jesus the Christ in places like Isaiah 53, they're confused. It's veiled to them like the veil over Moses' face. When they look at the Old Testament scriptures, they're as though they're seeing it through a glass darkly. That's what he's saying. So 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says this, But we all, church of the saved, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Old Testament revelation, the Old Testament understanding did not give full and complete understanding. It was veiled. The Old Testament spoke of mysteries that are not revealed until the New Testament reveals to us what those mysteries were. The Old Testament is full of similitudes and pictures and types. You can't understand them without the New Testament. They're only revealed in the New. So such things were being revealed at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, at the time of the actual activity of those temporary gifts of prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Those things were in the process of being unpacked and unfolded little by little because God was speaking through his apostles and prophets new revelation to eventually become the full canon of the New Testament little by little. Now we see through a glass darkly. But then we'll see face to face. What exactly could that mean in the interpretation we're looking at? Well, James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, preceding verse 25 that we saw earlier. It says, For if any be a hearer of the word, there you go, and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So now we have somebody looking into the Word of God, and it's compared to a man looking into a mirror. And it's compared to a man looking into a mirror and seeing his own face face to face. When you look at a mirror, you see yourself. You're looking at yourself face to face. You might not, you do it so often you don't even think about it, but it's kind of weird. There's another one of me. And you're looking right at you face to face, right? So now you know what everybody else is looking at <laughs> when they look at you. 
So the Word of God certainly is likened unto a mirror where we see ourselves face to face, and the mirror in this case now is perfect. It's without blemish. Because the completed New Testament and the whole Bible canon is perfect and without blemish. Do you know that, well, mirrors have been made out of a lot of different materials. There's any number of different metallic type coatings that can go on the back piece of a glass and if you've ever seen some of the cheesier models well they you don't exactly see yourself quite right you see through the glass darkly but the perfect mirror is the mirror that has pure refined silver as the backing of the mirror that's just the way they make them okay so the pure refined silver lo and behold Psalms chapter 12 and verse number 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Purified the number of completion times until it's completely pure, and so pure that there are no more imperfections in the silver. The perfect silver of the word of God is the backing that gives the face-to-face image. Do you see how that plays out? It's refined. All the impurities are taken out. You may remember from your Old Testament reading, if you've been reading through the Bible, in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, that God spoke to Moses face-to-face. Remember that? God spoke to Moses face-to-face. But further down in that chapter, like in verse number 20, It says that no man can see God at any time and live. Same very chapter. So here on one hand, he's saying he spoke to Moses face to face. And on the other hand, he's like, yeah, but I mean, not really face to face. And then later on in that chapter, it's when he says, Moses, go into the cliff to the rock and I'll put my hand over you and I'll pass by and you can come out and see my backside. But you can't see my full glory and still breathe. You're going to drop dead. So when it says Moses... And God spoke to Moses face to face. He, without question in the direct context, is not literally saying that God's full revealed face looked Moses in the face. Or we wouldn't have the Pentateuch. (laughs) We wouldn't have it. No, that literally means as it is written in in, Exodus 33, he he spoke to Moses face to face. It goes on and it says, as a man speaks to his friend. In other words, full, complete, open communication. That's how God spoke to Moses. He didn't actually see God's face. So I want you to notice Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. I told you a little Bible study today. I warned you. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. So Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel. They're about to go over the river Jordan. They're about to enter the promised land. So the us, all of us, is all of Israel. Okay? Verse 4. He says, The Lord, notice, the Lord talked with you, Israel, face to face, in the mount, in the midst of the fire. Well, did he? Well, it says he did. Is the Bible wrong? No. God is telling you exactly what he means to tell you. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Moses said, the Lord talked with you, Israel, face to face, in the mount, out of the midst of the fire. Verse 5, oh yeah, parentheses, well, I mean, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up in the mount. So you see what Moses is saying? God never spoke directly with his actual full face looking at Moses, and he never certainly did that with all of Israel but he still refers to it as the biblical term face-to-face, even with Israel, because through Moses, Israel got all the communication. God told him everything he wanted to tell him. He told him all the stuff he wanted to tell him. So he refers to it as face-to-face. So now we see through a glass darkly, then open and complete, unrestricted communication. Uh, This same idea is referred to in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 8, not just as face-to-face, but in this case it's referred to as mouth-to-mouth. So, with him, talking about Moses, with Moses will I speak, this time not face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth. Even apparently, notice, not in dark speeches, 
not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then, you were not afraid to speak against Moses, my servant Moses. So the idea is this. Moses is my guy. Moses is the guy I speak openly and honestly and tell him everything that's going on. He said, when I talk to Moses, you know what I don't do? I don't make Moses look through a glass darkly. I talk to Moses face to face. I give Moses all the info he needs to be, he needs to have, excuse me. So we all today, you know what we can do? We can talk to God like Moses did, face to face. You know what that means? Have you ever seen God's face? Actually, no, you actually haven't seen it. Does it really matter? Well, in the context of the scriptures that we found, we find, no, that doesn't actually matter, does it? We have, y'all, his full and complete revelation. And since we have his full and complete revelation, and all the mysteries are all revealed and they're all available, there are no more dark sayings for any of us. There are no more. So, let's go back to our list. It says, now we know in part. Now, this one might be a little bit tricky. On one hand, we all only kind of know in part. I mean, who here really thinks that they got everything all figured out and has perfect knowledge? So, it's easy to say that at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, the New Testament was not yet complete. God was still revealing it, right? So, certainly, their knowledge was not complete. You go back in 1 Corinthians to chapter 8 and verse number 2 where it says, If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, key word, yet, as he ought to know. Why? Well, primarily because God's not done revealing stuff yet. So there's more to be learned, y'all. That's what he was saying. But let me ask you a question. Is it possible that this idea of knowing things could mean more than just my full understanding? Because if to know means to have the knowledge available to me, well, then this application works perfectly. So we go back to the first mention of knowing things, and it's Genesis 3, 5, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that man may know good and evil. Well, do you really think, and we don't actually know, but do you actually think that Adam and Eve, immediately upon eating the fruit, that they knew everything that there could be known about good and evil at that moment? Or would you say that they now had available to them the ability to find it? I'd say they had the ability to find it. Because if to know actually refers to your accessibility to the truth, then certainly the Old Testament alone was not full access. But the completion of the New Testament is. So then, now we know in part, first century Corinthian church, then we shall know even as we are known. Well, this is certainly complete knowledge, right? As we are known, without question, infers known by God. God has perfect, mature, complete knowledge of us, right? So Jesus says in John 10, 15, As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather, are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? So the New Testament gives us full access to the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Because the revelation of God is now complete, even if you have not yet put in enough time to fully understand all of its areas which is why we read at the very last chapter of the very last book of the bible revelation 22 in the last several verses verses 18 and 19 this statement for i testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book is that the book of revelation yes is that the book of the bible yes if any man shall add unto these things God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Don't be adding new revelation on top of existing perfect revelation. That is the warning. That's why this Bible study today is so important. That's why it's important for Christians to know that God is not giving new words of revelation. The revelation is complete. He'll add to you the plagues if you start adding to his book. Or, in verse 19, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy... Well, you can't take away from it. It won't be perfect anymore. 
You can't do that, and so God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So the completion of the New Testament canon, and therefore the Bible's entire canon, provides the perfect, complete, mature, without blemish revelation of God, without error. Now this view is typically held by Baptists and other conservative, non-charismatic groups. Because with this view, it's clear that the speaking in tongues no longer exists today, as do none of the revelatory gifts. Because the revelation of God is now perfect in the final canon of the Bible. So all of the miraculous signs and wonders that God gave are no longer in effect. And there are denominations of churches that are divided over this very issue. They, it is my experience, allow me to say, typically don't study in this depth the Bible and the words of what God actually says about it. It is my experience, again, that when confronted with a biblical argument defending this position, frequently you get the defaulted reply from them saying things like, well, I don't really care what the Bible says. I know what happened to me. Well, let me just tell you, friends, that's dangerous. Because your personal experience cannot trump the authority of God's Word. And while you may be a very spiritual man or woman, just remember the Bible says there's a lot of spirits and only one of them's holy. Just remember that. But there is another legitimate option, and I know that my time's getting away, and I'm going to try and move through this, but you have to see, letter B, the case for the second coming. Because this is very important. So we need to define whether or not there's a biblical defense for the second coming being a legitimate interpretation of that which is perfect. So we're going to define the perfect thing in reference to that. Ephesians 4 and verse 13 says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's talking about the church and it's talking about the event of the rapture, but the comparison of the rapture is all of the church completes its maturity to become exactly like Jesus Christ, who is the perfect man. No doubt about it, right? Interestingly, also then, we have a reference to the perfect day, the millennium, Proverbs 4 and verse 18. But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. So the second coming of Jesus Christ is when the perfect man returns to earth to set up the perfect day. That's what it is. So there's a legitimate defense for the idea that the interpretation of that which is perfect could be the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Now I'm confused. Well, hang in there. God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. This pictures all of human history. 2 Peter 3.8, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So there's 6,000 years of human history and sin until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's going to be 1,000 years of peace and joy on earth. Jesus Christ is on the throne, the devil is bound, the curse is removed from the earth, and righteousness rules. I'd say that's a perfect day. So let's compare them with the nows and the thens. Now we see through a glass darkly. Well, we can interpret it the same way we did previously. We, we only know so much that we can know. We're, we're still working our way through. And, and whether that was true of the first century or today, I mean, I guess you could say in this context of interpretation that, well, we're, we're still figuring stuff out. But I would like for you to consider we see through a glass darkly. What, we see what? What is it that we see? Well, how about the glory of the Lord, like in 2 Corinthians 3.8? I want to give you some info on something, and I wish we had more time to camp here, and we don't, but I want you to notice that God says to Job in Job 38 and verse 30, The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Now that deep is defined for you in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 as a great body of water that divides the firmament from the firmament. The deep is not the ocean. 
The deep is a body of water in outer space that divides the second heaven, which is outer space, from the third heaven, the place where God dwells. And the face of the deep is frozen. Revelation chapter 15 and verse number 2. This is a view in heaven. This is a view in the third heaven, right? And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass. There it is. Mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So between the second heaven and the third heaven is this body of water called the deep. Literally, the top of it is frozen like glass. Jesus Christ is currently physically in the third heaven, and we see him darkly through the glass. Now we see through a glass darkly. Then face to face. Well, of course, when he returns, we see him literally face to face. And I do want you to notice the two little epistles of John, 2nd and 3rd John. 2nd John, verse number 12, there's only one chapter. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Similarly, in 3 John 13 and 14, I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shortly shall see thee, and we shall speak face to face. So notice in this context, face to face is clearly defined as what it cannot be. In this context, face to face cannot possibly be writing with paper and ink. Uh Uh-oh. Uh Uh-oh. So, you have to get the context, and you need to understand where it's going. So, it cannot be. He's saying, hey, writing is not good enough. I can't wait to see you and hug your neck and hang out with you. That's what he's saying. The world saw Jesus Christ face to face at his first coming, but his glory was veiled, right? He says in John 14, 7 through 9, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. The Father, really? So Philip says what I would have said. <laughs> saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? See, that's what he would say. That, have you not known me yet, Jeff? What in the world? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Because Jesus Christ is that perfect image the visible form of an otherwise invisible God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness, maturity, completion, perfection dwell. Colossians 2.19, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So his full, complete, perfect revelation occurs when he returns the second time. Now we know in part. Well, similarly to how we interpreted it earlier, we only have partial knowledge of things. We know God personally now, but who wouldn't say that our knowledge of the Lord is ever-growing as time goes on? I know my spouse very well, but my knowledge of her today is better than it was 10 years ago, and Not as good as it will be 10 years from now. The knowledge continues to grow, right? So in the context, this statement would be true, whether it was the first century or the 21st century. Now we know in part, but then at his second coming, we shall know even as we are known. Certainly then we'll fully understand everything completely. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You might say face to face. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. It's talking about the millennium. That's what it's talking about. And also, we already covered how faith and hope continue until the full revelation of Jesus Christ at His second coming. Then and only then is there no need for faith. Then and only then is there no more hope. Right? So this view, biblically defensible, 
is typically held by charismatic groups like the Pentecostals, typically. They would say, therefore, that gifts like speaking in tongues and all the miraculous sign gifts continue today until the second coming of Jesus Christ. They both make good arguments, don't they? They really do. Herein lies the dilemma. Which one's right? We could take a vote. Whatever y'all vote, that's what we're going with. No, it's not what we're doing. Don't do that. It's ridiculous. All right, ready? Which one's right? Letter C, the comprehensive solution. This won't take that long. This answer may or may not surprise you. I believe God intends that which is perfect, the perfect thing to be, the revelation of the Word of God. However it appears, whatever that means. So we have in your King James Bible the small w, Word of God, referring to the Scripture. You also have the capital W, Word of God, referring to Jesus Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh, right, and dwelt among men. That's Jesus Christ. The eternal, capital W, Word of God. Revelation chapter 19, and His name shall be called at His second coming, the Word, capital W, of God. So the Bible is full of references to the small w Word of God. It's the Scripture. The Bible has also references to the capital W Word of God. It's Jesus, the living Word. The written Word and the living Word. What is that which is perfect? It's the revelation of the Word of God. You mean small or you mean large? Yes. I mean both. I think that's the answer. Why? It's a dual application. So look in your notes. Man, we don't have time for this. Examples of dual applications. If this is, listen, if this is too much for you, just sit back and relax. Just relax. No big deal. It's air conditioned in here. It's all fine. But a lot of you already know this. What I'm going to tell you is going to resonate with a lot of you because a lot of you are good Bible students. We have a lot of examples of dual applications all through the Scripture. You don't even blink at them, right? The coming of the Lord from the view of the Old Testament prophet. First or second? Yes, I don't know. Because it depended upon what Israel was going to do at the first, whether there would be a second. Therefore, the kingdom. Well, we know that the kingdom is divided into two parts. There's the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual aspect. There's the kingdom of heaven, which is a physical aspect. Right now, we live in the kingdom of God, spiritually only. There is no physical inheritance of a land grant in the Middle East for us. Right? That belongs to the physical nation of Israel. But when Jesus Christ comes, he brings with him a physical, political nation, and he will be a king sitting on a throne. It will be a kingdom of heaven physically, also the kingdom of God spiritually. So we're only into the spiritual aspects of dual application. We talk about the old covenant, and we talk about the new covenant. Well, Christians want to apply the new covenant to the church. Well, only in some spiritual aspects where the law will be written on your heart, etc., etc. But the full application of the new covenant is given to Israel after the tribulation where it says no man has to say to his brother, to anybody else, know the Lord for everybody will know me. Well, that's not true now. But there are elements of the new covenant that are true now. That's a dual application. Go to Hebrews 8 for that explanation. We talk about the church. We have a local church now, but there's going to be a universal church where only the truly saved are together, and all the junk we mess with in local churches will be done because our sin nature will be gone and we'll just be spiritually perfect. Sanctification has a practical aspect now. It has a positional perfect application in eternity. Sons of God, we read in 1 John 3, Now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear that we get our glorified bodies until later, which is the idea of salvation, because salvation is actually, it's only your spirit that has been saved. Your body is still waiting the redemption, right? There's tons of dual applications throughout the Scripture. It is not a stretch to say when that which is perfect is come is the revelation of the Word of God. You say, well, those are two different time stamps. How do we know when stuff stops? 
Well, before we say that, let me say this. Each of the items in the now list, the partial list, are real, they're legitimate, they're necessary, they're just for a time, until the full and complete fulfillment arrives. One is a shadow or a type or a picture of the other. So what does that mean concerning the passing away of certain spiritual gifts? When does that happen? Well, since, in my opinion, both applications of the revelation of the Word of God are biblically proven and defensible, both have legitimate application. And the fact that the Scriptures, the perfect canon of completed Scriptures, showed up first gives us the first time stamp for the elimination of the partial things. So in your notes, here we are, this is it. The revelatory gifts cease upon the full revelation of the Scriptures because there's no more need for new revelation. But faith and hope cease upon the bodily revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how it fits together without violating one verse of Scripture, without twisting or contorting one thing, without contradicting anything that God says anywhere. This fulfills all. And it's the only way that fulfills all. So now, if by chance you just don't like it, you don't agree, you want to believe something different, okay, it's your choice. You have a free will. But if tongues, which is the big arguing point for most people, are still active, and by the way, I'm not talking about the unintelligible, ecstatic gibberish that people do today. But if you think that tongues can still be active today in some rare, remote application in foreign missions, where you're taking the gospel to some remote tribe where there's no translator and God has to get the word to those people and he needs to use somebody to use that gift and do that. That's always the excuse you typically hear. Okay, but can I challenge you that before you propagate that compromise, that at least you be able to cite legitimate, verifiable examples? Because everybody wants to say, yeah, but what about the exception to the rule? Well, how about the exception proves the rule? And let me just wrap up with this last statement in your, mo your notes. Remember, chapter 13 is all about charity. Don't be contentious. Don't be contentious. Because chapter 13 is not written so that we could fight about when tongues cease. Chapter 13 is written so that we, re we remember that charity never fails. Amen? So let's be charitable no matter what. That's the most important thing. Proverbs 13.10, only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Romans 14, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. So spiritual gifts are excellent, but charity is more excellent, and it's eternal. Let's invest in the things that last forever. The Word of God, the souls of men, and charitable behavior. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the perfect and perfectly preserved revelation of Scripture. Thank you that with due diligence we can find the answers. And I pray that the spirit of charity would just wrap his loving arms around all of us and help us to remember just how charitable you are toward us all and your long-suffering through our foolishness while loving us enough to guidely, gently guide us to the truth. Thank you for the revelation of the Word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As we continue this pilgrimage 
until that perfect day when you, the perfect man, split the skies and set up a perfect kingdom on a new earth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all these things. Lord, I know this is not the kind of message that draws people to salvation. I know this is not the kind of message that maybe makes everybody think that it's going to just help them tomorrow afternoon when they're at work or whatever, but really and truly it is. Because at the end of the day, we know that you have given to us the greatest gift of all. It is salvation. And then follow that up with your Holy Word and your Holy Spirit to live in us. So I just want to pray for the brothers and sisters, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that in all of our doing, that we will always endeavor to seek your face, seek your will, seek your clear mouth-to-mouth, face-to-face communication about any issue of our lives. Because this book is the book of life. Lord Jesus, we love you and we commit all this to you in your holy name. Amen.